To the statute of suppressions he did grudge against the same, and so did all the whole country, because the abbeys in the north parts gave great alms to poor men, and laudably served God, in which the parts of late days they had but small comfort. By occasion of the said suppression the divine service of Almighty God is much minished, great number of masses unsaid, and the blessed consecration of the sacrament now not used and showed in those places. These are the words of Robert Ask, uh, when examined while imprisoned in the Tower of London in 1537 for his part in the Pilgrimage of Grace. In this episode, we're going to look at the dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII. The dissolution of the monasteries in England and Wales was a campaign by the crown that had a dramatic and rapid impact both on religion, the crown, and country. Why look at the dissolution of the monasteries? The impact of the closure of monastic houses was far-reaching, affecting individuals, institutions, and the very landscape of Britain. It led to the most radical redistribution of land and property that had occurred since the conquest of England by William the Conqueror in 1066, and it has not been superseded since. It was an important development that forever changed the religious character of England and England itself. It is often considered the symbol of the end of the Middle Ages, as monasteries and monastic life were such a dominant part of medieval life. And it tells us a great deal about the state of the Church. It tells us a great deal about the reign of Henry VIII, his administrators, and the needs of the state. Well, what was the dissolution? Simply put, dissolution means closing down or liquidating. The dissolution of the monasteries entailed their being closed down, their property seized by the government and sold off or carted away to the royal treasury. This happened in many different ways and not equally to all monasteries. Sometimes monastic houses were violently seized, abbots and others executed, and buildings torn down. While in other cases monastic property was simply turned over to the crown, its members dispersed quietly or retired. Initially, it was smaller houses that were targeted, the larger, more powerful monasteries remaining for a time. The years leading up to the reign of Henry VIII were difficult years for monastic communities, and many believed that changes were needed. Many small religious houses closed in the late 15th and early 16th centuries, and confiscation of property did happen on occasion. For example, when Henry V led England into war against France in the early 15th century, the alien religious houses, small religious houses in England dependent on mother houses in France, had to sever their connection with France or suffer expropriation. From time to time it had been necessary to terminate the life of small convents, which had fallen on hard times were failing to attract new converts. A number of nunneries were closed to help fund the establishment of Jesus College at Cambridge. A similar, more extensive program was undertaken by Cardinal Wolsey, who in the 1520s closed down no fewer than 29 religious houses in order to endow a grammar school at his birthplace, Ipswich, and another new college, Christ Church, at Oxford. None of these actions were an attack on monasticism. They simply involved shifting money around for educational purposes, and if you need to do this, it was quite natural to look at the religious orders that often had a great surplus of wealth. It is worth noting, however, that Wolsey's chief agent in carrying out in clo uh, these closures during the 1520s was Thomas Cromwell, who would lead the dissolution in the 1530s. 
When we begin to look at the dissolution of monasteries proper in the 1530s, the first thing that we see is that it is something which developed over time. It wasn't one great event, um, as it's often portrayed, but rather something which developed over a longer period, although we're only talking about four years. When the dissolution of the monasteries officially began in 1536, with the Act for the Suppression of the Lesser Monasteries, it was presented as a needed religious reform. The introduction to the Act laid stress upon the worthiness of, quote, the great and honourable monasteries where religion was right and well kept. The larger houses were contrasted with the smaller houses that were resisting reforms. It also suggested that, quote, the idle and dissolute monks and nuns who live in these little dens of vice should be dispersed amongst the greater abbeys, where they will, by discipline and example, be brought to mend their ways. Now, initially, reform was the goal, and nothing more than a partial dissolution was contemplated. Under the guise of reform, the Suppression Act transferred to the Crown all the lands and property of religious houses with an income less than £200 per year. Compensation was given, and generally on very fair terms. Abbots, priors, and prioresses were awarded fairly generous pensions for life. Other monks and nuns could choose to be transferred to a surviving house or give up their vows and pursue a secular career. Servants and farmhands working at the monasteries were also considered, and when possible it was encouraged that they be kept on by the new owners. In short, the interests of all parties were looked after, in large part to ensure that the Act would go through Parliament. This all seems decent enough, however, in many cases, things weren't as smooth as they might seem. Agents of Thomas Cromwell, Henry's vicar general, spent six months visiting nearly every monastery and nunnery in the country. Since there were only four men, they could not have spent much time looking at each monastery. So there was about 900 or 950 monasteries. Their motives and findings are therefore highly suspect, especially since their findings often conflict with the more rigorous findings of visiting bishops. Cromwell himself, who was leading the entire program, had little of a positive nature to say of the monasteries, and in all likelihood was quite willing to do whatever he could to close them down. The result was that most abbeys, great and small, were branded as being corrupt. The Act was very careful to praise some of the larger houses. Again, abbots were very powerful individuals, many of them were members of Parliament, and they needed the, pa the bill to pass, and therefore... Um, they need to keep them on side. So at this early stage, the government appears to have been looking for a decent reason for suppressing the smaller houses, but not wanting to abolish monasticism altogether. Henry wished people to believe that his motive in suppressing the minor houses was one of reforming zeal. The 1536 Act was very carefully worded so people would be under the impression that the endowments from the suppressed houses would be put to better use, schools and hospitals, for example. But this did not happen. Most money went directly into the government's pockets. Kind of sounds familiar. Though only three out of every ten monastic houses in England and Wales were initially affected, and just the smaller ones, there was still considerable hostility towards the Act, especially in the north. In October 1536, a rebellion known as the Pilgrimage of Grace took place. This rebellion cons concerned a long list of grievances, the dissolution being the final straw. Monks and nuns were encouraged to return to their houses, and restoration of the suppressed abbeys was high on the list of the demands made by the rebels. The rebellion failed. The king waited, and when the rebels began quarreling amongst themselves about what next to do, Henry made his move, putting down the rebellion without mercy. 
The larger abbeys that had supported the rebels, and even many that had not, were then implicated on flimsy pretexts, and they experienced severe treatment. Abbots were executed, monks were turned out, and all property was seized and forfeited to the crown. It was common practice when a monastic house was suppressed for the crown to keep all precious metals, altar furnishings, bells, even the lead in the roofs, and all of this was very valuable. But of course this meant a certain amount of damage was done to the abbeys. Timbers were taken out of the roof, lead was removed, and over the years this led to great deterioration. So the extent of damage increased with the Pilgrimage of Grace. The Pilgrimage of Grace, with its demands for restitution and call for monks to re-inhabit their monasteries, made it imperative that the crown leave monasteries uninhabitable. Commissioners were therefore instructed to, quote, pull down to the ground all the walls of the churches, steeples, cloisters, freighters, dorters, chapter houses, with all other houses saving them that might be necessary for the farmer. In some cases, professional demolition gangs were employed. A fellow by the name of Giovanni Portinari uh, had a team of 25 men uh, working out of London, and they were hired to demolish Lewis Priory uh, in East Sussex. It had surrendered to the crown on the 11th of November, 1537. Columns and walls were undercut and shored with timber, then set on fire, bringing the whole structure crashing down. In some cases, gunpowder was even used. Portinari took great pride in his work and expertise. In a letter to Cromwell, he stated, quote, I told your lordship of a vault on the right side of the high altar that was borne up with four great pillars, having about it five chapels, which be compassed in walls seventy steps in length, that is two hundred feet. All this is down on Thursday and Friday last. Now we are plucking down a higher vault, borne up by four thick and gross pillars. The result was immense damage. At Lewis, there's very little to even suggest that a once great priory had stood on the site. As can be imagined, the implications of both the suppression of the monasteries and the destruction involved had far-reaching effects for the region. As outlined in the opening quote by Robert Ask, there was immense damage to these sites, but it meant much more than that. It meant that people could not engage with religion. They could not practice their faith. They might not be able to get last rites or get married. Education was affected. And of course, monasteries were very important centers of manufacturing. They were economic centers. And so they generated a great deal of wealth. And they did a lot for the community. All of this would be lost. The Cistercian Abbey of Furness was the first to sur simply surrender all its properties to the king. This was the first of many surrenders as monastic communities tried to avoid the severity and destruction they were beginning to witness. At this time, in the later months of 1537, we begin to see a marked change in government policy. From this point forward, there was either a commitment to total dissolution, or at least a policy geared towards seeing just how far it could be carried out. Many of the greater houses were in trouble by this point. There was increased dissension within monastic communities, Reform ideas were beginning to spread, not to mention people were terrified. And this marked really the second stage of the suppression. By October of 1538, almost 20 monasteries a month were going to the crown. The monks of Lewis were all retired on pension without the alternative of moving elsewhere. From 1538, this became normal policy. When it all began in 1536, monks were simply given the choice of moving to another house, but now, that wasn't going to be possible. 
This change suggested the government was now intent upon eliminating monasticism from England altogether. The language of the surrender deeds reflects this. Monks were instructed to declare that the monastic way of life was a, quote, vain and superstitious round of dumb ceremonies, unquote, which they now wished to abandon so that they might live like true Christians. In 1538, greater pressure was used to get the monasteries to surrender. Cromwell sent his men to bully monasteries into signing documents handing over the property to the crown. Those whom resisted for too long suffered. The old and venerable abbot Whiting of Glastonbury resisted for a time, but he ended up being dragged to the top of Glastonbury Tor, where he was executed and his body quartered. His body parts were displayed in four local towns, and his head was placed on the abbey gate, a rather strong deterrent to others that were thinking of resisting. Once the religious orders realized the lengths that the king would go, it was in their best interest to surrender quickly, negotiate the best possible settlement, and in this way, try and stop some of the damage that might be done to their beloved institution. So the process accelerated over the course of 1538, and by 1540, the dissolution was complete. So the question we have to ask, what was the motivation for this? What's the reason behind this terrible destruction of the country's religious communities and architectural treasures? Well, as you can imagine, there's been a variety of ideas put forth. Some have sought to establish a link between the dissolution and the crown's rejection of Roman jurisdiction caused by Henry's matrimonial difficulties, his assumption of the headship of the Church of England in 1534. What helps this argument is the fact that Henry was first seriously threatened with excommunication in 1535, just before the first monasteries began to be attacked. Secondly, it's also been argued that religious orders formed a strong pro-papal group in England that might endanger the security of the new royal regime. But there's not really good evidence for this. Most of the religious orders seem to have accepted their fate. They were in no way opposed to Henry VIII. In the spring of 1534, the Succession Act was passed, and it required every adult Englishman to take an oath accepting the validity of the king's second marriage, his marriage to Anne Boleyn. By implication, this meant a re to reject the authority of the Pope, who had given judgment against the marriage. Later in the same year, the wording of the oath was changed to make the rejection of papal jurisdiction more explicit, and the Treason Act brought the possibility of execution to all who refused to take the revised oath. The point is that most religious seemed quite content to take the oath. It was a small minority who refused, but their execution solved the problem. In other words, there's no real danger from the religious orders, as they were loyal to the crown. Also, the disillusion was much more likely to create opposition than remove it. So it was not really the sort of action one would take if they thought there would be opposition to such actions. Third, another motive that has been put forth is that it has something to do with the worship of relics and with pilgrimages. Thomas Cromwell, the recently appointed Vicar General of the newly proclaimed Church of England, appears to have led a determined attack on the veneration of relics and the making of pilgrimages to the more famous shrines like that of Thomas Becket at Canterbury. Cromwell clearly did not approve of this aspect of Catholicism and himself hated the venerations of saints' relics. However, some have argued that the attack on relics and pilgrimages was not so much due to his hatred of this practice, but rather it was a way to ridicule and discredit the religious orders, and therefore facilitated the suppression. The fourth and definitely most 
a plausible and important factor, of course, was money. This is the main motive. The resources of the Crown were no longer adequate to meet the ever-increasing cost of government and defence, particularly the cost of ships and guns, a heavy cost of a developing maritime power. One only has to look at pictures of a ship like the Mary Rose to get a better understanding of this. These ships bristled with cannon. They take, took thousands and thousands of pounds to build. And, of course, Henry didn't want just one. He wanted lots of them. Church bells could be melted down and made into cannon. The lead from abbey roofs could be made into lead shot. Henry also spent a lot of money in, the, in his wars with France and Scotland. Hostilities with France and the danger of a cross-channel invasion prompted Henry to build a string of fortresses along the Channel coast. My favorite example of this, although there are many that exist still, but my favorite is Camber Castle. A very significant castle, originally with a small tower that was established around 1250. In 1539, constructions begun to build around this. And it's not really a castle, but more a fortress. And this was something which had, uh, you know, came at great expense. It's estimated that it cost 5,660 pounds in its day just for construction. Then you would have had the payment of soldiers and so on there as well. 5,660 pounds might not sound like a lot, but in today's money, that's about 2.7 million. And of course, again, this is just one fortress of many. So these fortresses were expensive to construct, to man, and they forced Henry to rely more heavily on Parliament. The high-handed methods of Cardinal Wolsey had antagonized Parliament, almost driven England to the verge of rebellion. So Henry's new chief administrator, Thomas Cromwell, was eager to find a way to save everything and strengthen the crown in the process. So it was only natural that his eyes fell upon the religious orders. They were wealthy, they controlled a great deal of land and movable wealth. At the time, their reputation was low, and there was very few people that would defend them. The secular clergy were always jealous of the monks and would likely support any action against them. And, of course, an attack on them would represent attack upon superstition. So what was the impact of all of this? Well, for the crown, it was very important. It staved off bankruptcy at least a generation. There was no educational disaster afterwards, and there was no great host of beggars on the roads as monastic charity played an important role, but it wasn't going to make that big of a difference. No new class of landlord was created as the land went to existing landlords. But it did end pilgrimages, which were an important part of medieval life. It contributed very significantly to the secularization of society. But perhaps most significantly, it brought about the devastation of many of England's great architectural masterpieces. It destroyed a great deal of history and religious tradition. And one only has to look at any number of um, abbeys, ruins, um, such as St. Augustine's in Canterbury, um, and many, many others, um, to see what was lost at this time, all so that Henry could line his pockets and embark upon his great mission, which was to build ships, build castles. He had over 50 palaces by the end of his um, reign, and to just create that great name for himself.